What's going on, guys? Welcome to the John Papaloni Show. Today is episode 54. We're going to be interviewing Riley Oikel, and we're going to be talking about real estate. Riley, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. So, you know, hope all is well, and, uh, you know, I'm excited about this uh, episode. I mean, from what I understand, you're out of uh, London, Ontario. Yeah, yeah. I uh, actually right now I'm in Toronto, so out of Toronto. Oh, no but, way. Uh, yeah, I'm in Toronto. Yeah, exactly. No way. I was in Etobicoke for uh, about forty out of my forty-five years. Okay. Yeah. So, which is exactly. part of the Toronto area, right? Yep. Yep. Towards oh. Mississauga, there. Yeah, exactly. My office is in Mississauga, which is where I'm at right now. So okay. awesome, awesome. So why don't we start off? Maybe if you could give us a brief. Uh, bio of what you do and how you got there brief bio sure so yeah i guess right now then um yeah like like he said you know john said here my name is riley i actually run a real estate investing business out of southwestern ontario and then we have a, a couple of properties as well in the Cortha lakes that are airbnb properties um yeah and, and then on the side as well i also do coaching and uh the coaching that i offer to, to people would be helping people actually to buy their first investment property and, and be able to manage it profitably and passively. So I'm really helping beginners just to get their first one. So uh, that's a kind of a quick bio. Um, I also grew up in Nova Scotia and then came to Ontario here to go to school at Western University in London. And that's uh, why, why I was building a portfolio in London. Yeah. Oh, okay. That, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. So yeah, obviously you have a uh, portfolio out there. What are you at right now? If you don't mind me asking. Sure. We're, we're up to 15 units right now. 15 yeah. units. Fantastic. That's not bad, man. Like how old are you again? For just uh, 25, 25. So that's why I wanted the listeners to take note. 15 units at age 25. That's kind of impressive. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I'm definitely happy with it. There's a long way to go for sure. But uh, yeah, so far so good. Absolutely. So why real estate? Like what, what made you get into this over stocks or mutual funds or anything else like that that's available? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually wanted to start running a renewable energy business. So that was a passion of mine. I, I, I took a few courses at university around sustainability and environmental uh, studies, and then I ended up wanting to, to start like a geothermal company. Uh, and, and to run that business, you actually need to have a hydraulic drill that will be able to put down a vertical line system. So I, I started looking into how much these things cost and they're like $1.5 million or more uh, for like a good hydraulic drill. So I'm like, okay, got it. Like I heard the banks will give you loans. Um, so I'm gonna go to the bank and I'm gonna ask for a loan. And I, you know, I was talking with the advisor there and they, they asked me about assets and what assets I own. And cause obviously they want collateral if they're gonna give a loan like that. Right. Um, I didn't own anything. Well, I, I, I did own a, a $2,000 um, Equinox, Chevrolet Equinox. And so I told them, hey, I, I have a $2,000 vehicle. Does that count? And they said, they, they said, no, no, not a, not a chance. <laughs> There's no way we're giving you a loan here today. So I walked over there with my head down, but also very curious then around what are assets? Like, where do I find them? What do they look like? Realize that stocks, mutual funds don't really classify as assets. The banks won't give you loans based on those as collateral. Um, and that made me really interested in investment properties and, and how, you know, it's a tangible asset. You can go up, you can touch it. It has value in and of itself. So, you know, that kind of led me on the journey here of building a portfolio. And, um, I like to say that my cash flow in my portfolio is really going to be my safety net for, um, you know, more lucrative entrepreneurial ventures in the future. So that, Hey, if a business doesn't go so well, I also have this cash flow coming in to live off of. So, yeah. Right. Which makes sense. Totally get that. So, yeah, okay. So then, um, which brings the other question, right? And uh, which brings the other question of the fact that um, you didn't get the approval for, uh, you know, for the loan, but now you're buying houses. How did you get that? Um, how did I get that? Yeah, I would say that. Uh... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I ended up. How did it begin? Because yeah, I mean, obviously how you did I, a bank, right? And they said, I'm not giving you yeah. one and a half million well, th dollars. There's a big difference between buying a $200,000 property in Sarnia uh, and then buying a, a $1.5 million drill. Um, so, yeah, like it, it was, you know, basically easier for me to get 
like a, another investment property than it was for, for me to get this drill. And then to slowly start snowballing the portfolio and make it bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, everyone kind of hits a wall. They hit a wall at maybe one property or two or three or four when it comes to your financial capability and your also your mortgage capability. Yes. So after I hit my wall, I really started pivoting towards like what they call joint venturing. We partner with people and co-own properties. So, uh, that's kind of what, what I've done now to accelerate and, and buy more properties. Makes sense. So yeah. Okay. So you got into joint venturing, like explain to us how that works exactly. Yeah, it's a pretty simple concept. Um, people can make it complicated, but just very simply put, there's essentially multiple people that would come together that are bringing different roles or responsibilities to co-own a property. And you kind of have to think, well, um, what are these roles? What are the responsibilities? I like to just very simply put it down, break it down into four different components. So when you're looking at who's bringing what to like co-own an income property, uh, you have the four M's. So I call it the four M's of joint venturing. Uh, the the first M would be uh, money. So whoever brings in the money, that's the down payment, the renovation costs, the, the closing costs. They, they actually get 25% equity or stake in the property. And then the next M would be mortgage. So whomever brings in the mortgage for that property gets 25% uh, equity again or stake in the property. Um, and that would either be an A or B mortgage, not like private loans or anything. Um, the next M is simply just whoever's going to be doing the management. So that's finding basically managing the renovation, managing the property, like doing the property management, and then the financial management. They also get 25% equity. And then that last M is when someone actually brings in the off-market property or the discounted property. It could be on or off-market and analyzes it and makes sure that it kind of hits the metrics that you have for it to be like a really good investment. Um, and that also deserves another 25% equity. So based on who's bringing what, you can kind of structure it uh, and break down the percentages from there on out. But you know, right. ultimately, it's just to be able to accomplish more together. Um, my biggest saying here is like, I'd rather own half a watermelon than an entire grape. So I'd rather go and buy 10 properties in a year and own 50% of them than to just be able to buy one of my own. Well, here's the other thing, right? With uh, If you have multiple properties, that gives you the opportunity to mitigate risks. Because you know what, when, like, the way I look at it is if you have one property with one renter in it and that renter stops paying you, now it's all on you. Where if you, what are the odds of having 10 properties and all 10 people stop paying? It's not likely, right? So even if yeah. one stops paying, it's easy mm -hmm. to come up with cash flow. Like when you have cash flow from the other nine, it's easy to compensate. So you're not dead in the water where if you have the one property, one guy stops paying now you got to pay for your own property of where you're living and you're paying for theirs too. At some point in time, your income is not going to cover everything. No, right? no you're so right. Yeah. It's a big risk. You're, you're right. It, it definitely is the average of all of them. Um, if we have a renovation that doesn't go well on one property, it's like we can really hang our heads low and be like, oh, you know, like this isn't going so well. We're losing money on an investment. But then you can look at the other property that's going super well. That's going to be making you way, way more than what you've lost on the other one and be like, okay, well, on average, we're still we're still winning, right? You Absolutely. Can't win them all. I agree with you. And that's, that's exactly where I am. And I, I don't believe like, look, I believe one, if your choices are buy one house or keep renting and waiting, then buy one house or condo or townhouse. Doesn't matter. Just get in the damn market. Doesn't matter how, who cares why just get in. But if you have the option to buy more than one door, I think that's always a better way to do it. Even if you're going to buy a house and you only want to buy a single family home, buy a bungalow so you can rent the basement and the upstairs separately. So you got two incomes. I don't believe in just having one door. The more doors you have, the less risk it is. And appreciation is the same regardless. So might as well utilize it and lower the risks. That's my view. Everyone's different and, you know, I'm not judging. Anyone can do what they want, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I love that. So like joint ventures, um, that's the thing, right? So like that's that's I, I've heard that a lot now, and now now like I'm gonna touch on a part of uh, what you said. You're buying the homes at at the right price. So typically, you're looking for off market uh, homes, if I'm not mistaken. Well, it could be on or off market. Yeah, um, e either works. Yeah. yeah, but generally, you're trying to get it under under the uh, normal value. Um, potentially, yeah. Like, obviously, if you can get it for less than than what the fair market is, then that that's something to to look at. Ultimately, it's just like finding the right type of property. It's like a distressed home needs a lot of work. 
Um, and usually, you know, the homeowners just may, might not have the money there to fix it up. Um, so they're like, yeah, you know what? I, I understand if I put 40 grand into it, it could probably sell for a hundred grand more, but you know, I don't have 40 grand right now. Needs a lot of work and uh, willing to kind of let it go for less because I just don't have the cash to fix it up. So, you know, we're kind of looking for those, those uh, diamonds in the rough, like, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. So if we can find something that needs a lot of work and we can buy it for a bit cheaper than what um, they could probably get it for if they fixed it up a lot more, then Absolutely. fantastic. We'll be able to be the ones that put that money into it, fix it up and um, get a better return. Absolutely. So the, the real income, aside from appreciation over time, comes in from, uh, you know, buying homes that need repairs, making those renovations, fixing it up and then renting it out for the maximum value. Exactly. Which makes sense. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and that's the thing. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here. Let's, let's be honest, right? A lot of times what happens is you can get off market things, uh, with people who don't want to use realtors. There's opportunity there. Let's face it. I mean, even though there's advantages to have realtors, there's some people that get hung up on the commission and then say, Oh my God, I'm not paying that. So they'd rather sell their home for less, even if that means it's, you know, going to be less money for them even after paying the commission because they don't get it. There's just a realtors are evil and it, it exists and it doesn't matter what we say or what we do. There's always going to be somebody out there that doesn't like a realtor and wants to do it on their own. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that is opportunity and a half. I mean, Hey, it goes back down to, I don't know. I, I don't know how you guys find the properties, but just old, right. And on top of that, I'm sure you guys advertise, you know, look in the, you know, buy or sell your home quickly. We pay cash unseen, right. I'm sure that's an opportunity too. And that's okay. It works for some people. Some people just need to get out and they need to be out in a week and they don't really care as long as they get a reasonable value and they just want to be out. And that's where I find there's opportunity in that, right? If you're willing to do it, there's opportunity. So, yeah, no, there's, there's lots of different ways. Uh, you can be pretty creative with this type of stuff. And uh, as an investor, you're kind of the same as like a realtor too. At the end of the day, you need to control your own, your own funnel, funnel of properties that you can buy. So, that could be on off market doesn't really matter. Um, my, my rule of thumb is always work with an investor or, or always work with an investor friendly realtor, like someone that, that knows the market, they understand investments and, uh, and yeah, you can definitely complement each other and create a win-win between you and your realtor. Absolutely. A hundred percent agree with you on that. So yeah, there's, there's many avenues to this. I, I like the joint venture stuff, right? Like again, everyone, as long as somebody brings something to the table, there's opportunity for everyone. So did, how did you come across joint ventures? Like, is it something like you just knew about or did you, somebody bring you into it? Did you learn about it? Did you research? Yeah, it, it was through really just asking a lot of experienced investors, like what they would have done differently when they were starting off. And, and it became very obvious that many of them were mentioning joint venturing. They wish that before um, they, they could actually get their own mortgage, that they, they were to partner with other people or that they would have started joint venturing at the very beginning um, to just build up a large portfolio, right? So um, again, I, I'm kind of in, in the perspective now of like really wanting to just grow like a, a large portfolio, whether I own 25%, 35%, 50%, 75, 100, you know, of course, like that will vary, but it's really just getting that experience under my belt. Um, and so doing multiple renovations at the same time, being able to leverage those renovations, owning a property management company, doing all the financials for each property. Like there's a lot going on there. And, and I'm just grateful to have the opportunity to work with some great people that have money, they have mortgages and they want to partner. And, uh, and then that gives me the ability to kind of like sharpen my, my tools to be able to become a better investor myself. Um, of course, I'm going to have my own personal portfolio. I'm going to be buying properties on the side uh, that I own 100%. And at the same time, again, I, I'd rather do this full time and be able to own 25 to 50% on the property. Um, so yeah, I think again, just to answer your question, it was just asking people at the beginning, like what they wish that they would have done differently. And a lot of them had mentioned joint venturing to be a, a creative financing strategy that they wish that they would have utilized more at the beginning. Makes sense. Now, let me ask you something. When you're doing the joint venture, like how is it structured? Because somebody has to get a mortgage right now. Can, is everybody on title or is it done through a corporation? Is it just the person on the mortgages on title? Is it two people on title? Like, how does that work? Yeah, there's lots of different ways that you can, you can, uh, you know, do it. But uh, the, the way that I like to do it would be that they're on title. Um, they have the, you know, they have the mortgage there at the bank. And then 
I get to, to partner with them as well and just kind of help them with the property. So, yeah. No, I mean, like is everybody, like all four partners on title or is it just the one on the mortgage? Um, you could do it either way. Yeah. So everyone could be on title. You could all go on it or, or you could also not. It, it kind of just depends on the situation. You could also create a corporation too. I've had a lot of people I've known that have gone, they've created a corp and they've broken down, uh, you know, shares. Like each person gets a certain portion of shares within that corporation. Um, so yeah, lots of different ways to do it. Absolutely. No, I was asking because it's one of those things that, um, like, obviously, for example, there's only so many uh, mortgages a bank's going to give an individual. And I believe, as an example, I'm going to use Scotiabank. I think after five, they cut you off. So well, that being said, obviously, and pretend I'm the one with the five and I want to go out and get a six, I'm not going to get approved. So if I do a joint venture with you and you have the ability to get the mortgage, would me being on that title with you be a hindrance to that mortgage? Or is it just you qualify and, and you get the mortgage? It doesn't matter. Like, yeah, you, you, definitely have to, you definitely have to look at who is going on title with you and ensure that they are also able to withstand the debt to service ratio or the GDS and TDS scores that are needed. Because um, like the banks will look at both people on title as individuals being able to actually withhold that own debt to service. So there's 500K of debt, you know, 500K... 500k mortgage on a property, they're going to actually say, well, both John has 500k of debt and Riley has $500,000 of debt. So they're not going to split it up and say, okay, you both have 250. They're going to say you both have the exact same amount. So can you actually, does your debt to service actually um, withhold like the ability to, to have that big amount of debt? And, right, uh, and right. a lot of the cases it, it might not. So, you know, why would both of us go on mortgage if like, my debt to service is better and yours isn't. So I'd go on mortgage technically in that situation. Right, not where I'm going, right? So how would you, um, how would I be protected? Just say I'm capped because I got the five properties. I'm capped. I cannot get approved anymore. That's why I'm bringing you on. But I have the down payment. So my question is, how would I be protected by doing this joint venture? Yeah, you, you would have to have like an agreement with someone. If you were to do that, you'd have to have a, an agreement there in the background. So you can create like a joint venture agreement where you both co-own that property um, off title. Right. Okay. I get it. I get it. Have I, have you, I'm, well, I'm sure you have, like when you got into it, at least, has there been any, uh, what, what challenges have you come? That's where I'm trying to get at. What challenges have I, yeah. You know, like joint venturing is unique in the sense that you're going to have a lot of different business partners. If you're approaching it from the mentality of like, um, yeah, I'm going to go and I'm going to buy 15 properties in a year. They're each going to be with a different joint venture partner. You're essentially bringing on board 15 business partners. And this is not like a, a one night stand or like a weekend hurrah. This is like some serious <laughs> stuff. Like you're, you're signing an agreement, like hours are five years minimum. So you, you're really, you're really signing a marriage agreement with this person. It's a 25 year amortization, five year minimum. Like you guys are, are really going in deep together. Like you need to make sure, Hey, that you enjoy that person. I, I always like to say you, you need to know them, like them and trust them. And if you don't know and like them and trust them, do not go into business with them. Um, simply put, like even just for a day, but this is some serious stuff. Like you're signing, you know, an agreement that says that you both hold the same debt or that you both um, own the same amount of equity in a property. Um, so again, you just want to make sure that you really know them, like them, trust them. And sometimes say hey, I've, I've made a bad judgment call. I've gone into business with people that after a year, you know, it just hasn't worked out because it's like, oh, like you're not who I thought you were or, or you know, whatever. So, you know, you've kind of had to exit the JV or whatever. But um, ultimately, like at the end of the day, you just want to make sure, again, you're doing a great job at screening people. Um, if you are looking to be, quote unquote, kind of the active partner, the one doing all the work, um, if, you, if you are looking to do that active partner and do all the work there, just make sure that you are being very selective um, with who you're partnering with. Um, so that's right. a challenge of mine is, you know, I don't want to do one property with each joint venture partner. I want to do maybe three, four or five because I'd rather own 50 properties with five people than to own 50 properties with 50 people because that's a lot. That, that's a lot of business partners to manage. Um, yeah. That's for sure. That's for sure. Now you said you have, sometimes you have to exit. So obviously there's going to have to be some form of a clause there somewhere in your agreement with a strategy on exiting. Should something happen? Yeah. So you have a, like a shotgun clause. It's essentially that, um, you know, after you guys want to exit, uh, the agreement will, uh, oh, and we'll also put in there like a clause around the right of first refusal. Um, that, that essentially like 
whichever partner wants to exit. Uh, we'll have the opportunity to um, have the other partner there to buy them out. So the one partner that wants to stay into the property can just simply buy them out. Um, yeah, so, so that's very important that way. Like, hey, if you know, one of my partners wants to keep the property and I want to exit, then you know they, they have the opportunity to keep it. We don't just have to sell it. Um, we can continue, they, they can continue holding on to it. Um, yeah. Makes sense. Makes total sense. Okay. Yeah. I, I like that. that. That's, that's good. So I noticed, uh, based, I think it was your Facebook page that you had recently just uh, completed a, uh, new uh, joint venture. Uh, I think it was July 9th. Um, yeah, um, most likely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, like we're, uh, we're, we're taking on just, just a few joint venture partners a year now. We're kind of more selective. Um, but, uh, yeah, like we just took on one there a little while back. Oh, I think that's, yeah, I'm just looking it up now. Yeah. That's the, the triplex in St. Thomas. That would, triplex. That beautiful. On. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, see that, there we go. That's three doors. I mean, I, I, I love the way you're going. Um, it's right in my alley. I, I don't like the one doors, as I said. So it's, um, that was smart. What made, like, did you just find the deal or did you purposely look for a triplex? Yeah, we're constantly looking for multifamily residential properties. Um, some of our partners um, kind of prefer that that sort of property. And uh, yeah, so, so we're, we're staying away from anything commercial right now where we have to do kind of 25, maybe even 35% down a larger amount. Um, yeah, we're really focused on multifamily residential, but this one in particular, yeah, we were looking for a two, three, four unit building in St. Thomas or Chatham and, and this one came up and uh, and yeah, like there was actually, we bought it for 392 and there was just a triplex that sold uh, six streets over for 670. Um, this this one here has like, uh, I guess two two single uh, units, uh, like two, two one beds and then one two bed. The one that sold down the street was three two beds. So obviously that's gonna make a difference. But um, overall, yeah, I think it's going to be a great burr project. We're renovating it right now and should be finished within the next three weeks. You know what? I've been dying to ask somebody this. Uh, and I'm, I have a feeling I know the answer. I just don't know the term. What is a burr? I keep hearing it. And, and again, I've done this stuff myself, so I'm sure I've done it and just don't know I'm doing it. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's a newfound acronym that many, many uh, senior investors, people that have been doing this for 5, 10, 15 years, look at it and they laugh because it's like, hey, I've been doing this and I didn't even know it's called the burr because this is a newly found term. Um, it's true. It, it's, yeah, it's very straightforward. So burr is B R R R R. So there's four R's and one B. Uh, the, the B stands for buy. And when we're speaking about buying, it's like buying it discounted, buying it, uh, buying a property that's distressed, needs a lot of work that you analyze and like hits all the numbers that you need to, needed to hit. So the buying is obviously quite important. If you buy high, it's really difficult to make it up on the back end. So the buying is super, super important. Absolutely. Once you buy it correctly, then you need to be able to renovate it. And we like to say you need to be able to renovate the property strategically. Um, strategically meaning, of course, that not all money invested into the renovation will actually create an ROI on that investment. Um, for example, if you're going to, to spend five grand on a furnace, that may or may not actually increase the value of the property, right? Um, and, and then if you're gonna spend five grand on like the kitchen, well, that actually could, that could, that could create $10,000 of value in the property. So not all renovations will actually add value. The worst thing that, that I hear from time to time is that someone spent a hundred grand on a renovation and it increased the property's value by 50,000. So they just kind of like magically lost $50,000 in there somehow. So you need to be able to renovate it very strategically. Um, you know, kitchens are usually the best thing to do. Bathrooms are great. Um, just like a fresh paint, um, paint job, and then making sure that you're laying the flooring. Um, so that, that would be the, the renovation piece. And then after it's renovated very strategically, um, then you can rent it. So it's important that you're going to rent the property for fair market rents, if not top of the market in rents. Um, and, and in doing that, again, you're going to be able to increase the value of the property. And then after you, you, you've renovated it, and you've increased the rents, then you're going to naturally just go to the bank and say, hey, bank, this is not the same property that I bought four months ago. This is a completely different property. Look at the before photos, look at the after photos, look at the rents before, look at the rents after. Um, I know it was worth this back then. Let's do an appraisal and, and just see if it's worth more now. So when it is worth more, then you can actually get a check and that's called the refinance check for the difference between the first mortgage and that second larger mortgage. And if that check's large enough to cover the 
the entire money that you had invested for that down payment and the renovation cost, then you've just completed a hundred percent burr. So all of your money's back out within, you know, within the year even, and then you can take that money and you can reinvest it into the next property. Um, so that's what we do. We'll, we'll buy, we'll buy discounted properties that are distressed, fix them up, rent them for top of the market and then refi them. So there you go. Now, anyone who's going to be uh, listening to this later or watching it later, you just got the investment 101. And that is exactly the best way to be able to uh, earn money quickly. And the quickly means a year. <laughs> so it, it, it's the best way of investing, right? It's the way to get your money out, keep reinvesting and accumulating more property. And there's very little risk in property, as you know, right? Because let's face it, if things go down, you just hold on to it. Things go up and you're ready to move on, you move on. But I believe in buy and hold myself. I mean, I'm not sure your belief, but I believe you buy, you just hold on to it and just keep collecting rents. No, I, I do as well. I, I really do. I think you can break down all the strategies out there for real estate investing into two categories. One is either active income where you're kind of like replacing your nine to five job and it's money that you'll be able to generate maybe this week or this month. Um, you know, for example, wholesaling or for example, flipping. Um, when you're looking at like the wealth creation strategies, that's the other category. That's where like people become really rich. You know, that's when you own a $4 million portfolio where year over year, it's appreciating at 2% and that compounds of course. So, you know, over 10, 15, 20 years, like you're saying, if you hold on to that portfolio, um, you're going to make a good, good chunk of change. And that's not money that you have to work for when things appreciate, it's just natural appreciation. So. You don't have to lift lift a finger. If you were in Toronto and you owned a million dollar home this last year, you might have just got a twenty percent increase on that value of your home. So you just made two hundred thousand dollars. You didn't have to do anything. Um, and you just held on to it. So, yeah, That's you true. definitely will make more money long term with uh, with a buy and hold. Absolutely. And that's the thing, right? On average, if you look 40 years of history, real estate tends to double every 10 years on average. Hold on to it for 10 years, you doubled your money. And the best part is, and this is, you know, wealth building, right? The refinancing is the key part to wealth building. Because when you have a rental, and if you sell the rental, you pay capital gains. But you don't pay capital gains on loans. So as long as you keep refinancing, you keep the mortgage high, and you keep purchasing, when you sell a unit, there is no profit on it because you've taken out the profit. Yeah, a little actually, yeah, I, I want to point back to like that burr. I did forget an R in the oh, last oh, R yeah, is actually right. pretty important. It's called the repeat, you know? Right. So <laughs> it's it's the buy, renovate, rent, refinance, and then repeat. repeat. And, and the repeat <laughs> is super important. And I think the reason why they added that onto the acronym is exactly what you just said. It's because, hey, when you can refi, you're going to have expenses to offset that capital income or capital gain. And uh, you can reinvest that right into the next property uh, tax-free, essentially, if, if you do it well. So that the repeat's very important. Absolutely. And, and that's the, that's the true wealth building formula. I mean, I, I, you know, cash in the bank is basically dead money. Inflation goes up. If you had a hundred thousand dollars sitting in the bank and inflation is three and a half percent, you now have 97,500, even though it says 100, right? It's just dead money. It's useless, useless cash. Uh, and I, you know, I don't believe in savings. I, I keep my accounts empty. I don't mean I don't have investments. I mean, I just don't have cash. And I don't believe in having cash because, like I said, inflation. So you always need an investment to be able to offset the uh, inflation. And the best way to do that is to um, is to do uh, what we just said, just reinvest it that way. This way the house is offsetting and you're producing cash flow. 90% of the time, you, or you when you buy units, you're, you're, you're getting cash flow. It's not breaking even or losing. But uh, being honest, if I bought something just say i bought something for five hundred thousand. i use fictitious numbers pretend uh my mortgage is 1800 and all my expenses may it comes out to 2000 stupid numbers wrong numbers obviously but i'm giving an example but all i can collect on rent is 2000 or even 1900 when you calculate the appreciation it's still worth doing at a hundred dollars loss right overall if you think about it because the appreciation and the increase is going to always outweigh that hundred dollars loss and it's like you said when you re eventually what will end up happening is the rents will go up and it'll offset that loss. And then you'll have appreciation, which you can refinance as well. So between the two of them, you're always going to be ahead. So 
that's what I love about this thing. And again, most times, most things, 90% of the time, if you buy right, you'll have cash flow anyways. So you'll actually make money and you, and you know, you'll have money coming into your pocket and you're still earning, which is the best way. Like it's like a triple income in a sense. So that's the way I look at it. I love it. Absolutely love it. And that's one of the reasons I got into real estate because I absolutely love this formula. So that's great. Um, now I was going to ask you something, but um, you know, I went on a little tangent and I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, let's see. What was I, where was I going with this? Oh yeah. I was going to ask you something, you know, throughout this whole process, do you guys use one bank account or do you guys have a separate bank account for investment property? And when I say separate bank account, do you have a separate bank account for all your investments or do you have one per house? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I can speak about what we're doing and then, you know, kind of mention other ways in which it could also make sense. What we'll do is for every property that we buy, we will set up a bank account for the property just to keep it separate from our personal finances. So it's very simple that if a you know, CRA were to audit us and they were to investigate and look into the property and the expenses and the income. It's like, hey, this is the bank account for that property. Here's everything coming in and coming out of that account. Um, and then we'll also have like an expense tracking spreadsheet, which is kind of like a ledger that will just indicate exactly what the transaction was for, uh, the data came out, what, you know, uh, what category it fell within, where it was going and, um, and the amount as well. So we'll have that ledger on the side of the bank account. And that just like indicates exactly what everything's going, where, where it's all going, what it's for. Um, yeah, so so just a separate bank account per property. Another way to do it as well is like, hey, if you're gonna do you know buy multiple properties with the same individual, you can actually just keep it all maybe in one bank account if you'd like. So you know that can get a little bit more messy. It's not as as clear, but then that way you don't have to own multiple bank accounts uh, with the same individual. You could just own one for all the properties that you're buying with that person. If you're doing multiple JVs again with the same person. Um, right, right. So obviously you would base it on how, who's the joint venture. If you have somebody that's not part of the normal circle for that, you wouldn't have the same bank account because it'd be too confusing. That's right. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. I get that part. Now, I got a question for you. When you're working with people or looking for uh, investors or trying to teach people, uh, you know, the process, I'm sure you're going to have some form of uh, pushback and, you know, like as we'll call them limited beliefs. What are some of the things you've heard, you know, in your venture? Lots of limiting beliefs out there. Yes, quite a few. Uh, you know, I can speak about mine here briefly and then kind of explain the ones that I see all the time. My biggest limiting belief before buying investment properties was actually that I wasn't a handy person. That, I, you know, I, I didn't know how to unclog a toilet, didn't know how to paint or lay flooring. So therefore, how can I invest in real estate? Like, you know, I'm not a contractor by trade like a lot of other investors out there. So how am I going to be able to do the maintenance requests and deal with all this stuff? So, you know, it really just came down to just educating myself and you know, doing smaller renovations at the beginning and then escalating that and doing more massive renovations later on to just like be on job sites again and ask really good questions with the contractors to understand how to budget for the reno, how everything works. And, you know, I, I haven't swung a hammer yet on a renovation job site. So my plan is to not have to do that and to not have to lay flooring and do that handyman work. So my limiting belief was kind of, you know, swiped away. It, it, it was fine. It was de-escalated after I really got the education. And I think that's kind of the key here too, is like, once you have that education, it's not such a limiting belief anymore. Your fears disintegrate and you're fine to move ahead. Um, other limiting beliefs for sure is, hey, I just don't have the money. You know, I don't have the money to buy a property or I don't have the mortgage capability because my credit score is bad or whatever, you know, is going on there with, with your mortgage capability. Um, another one is just like, hey, I had a friend once maybe that didn't do so hot on a real estate investment. And he said, landlording sucks and, you know, property management sucks. So I don't want to buy a property because I don't want to be a landlord or a property manager. Um, yeah, like there, there's a ton out there, but those are kind of the, the heavy hitting ones is, you know, don't want to be a landlord or a property manager. I don't want to deal with, with disrespectful tenants. Um, I don't want to, uh, you know, be the person to, to have to swing hammers on job sites. I don't have the money or I don't have the mortgage. Um, and again, all of those can be worked around. When it comes to the money in the mortgage, find someone else. Simply put, find someone else that has the money in the mortgage that they don't want to do that work. When it comes to the renovation, just hire people. Learn how to hire them, how to select them. But once you know that, then you're fine to just outsource it. And simply for the handyman stuff, again, same idea, just hire someone to do the work for you so that you don't have to. Um, those are the, the main limiting beliefs, I'd say, John. And um, they're all valid. They all make a lot of sense. And I understand them because I've faced all of them in one way or another. 
and uh, and they can all be uh, you know erased or just removed once you kind of get that knowledge. Right, that makes sense. So education is where the problem arises from, so, you know. What I mean, it's, or lack of education on that, which makes sense. I get that, and that and that's the thing, though. So you have to have an open mind and be willing to uh, put in the time and effort to get past it. And I and I get it. Like we we grow up, and let's face it, we're all we all grew up in the same manner. Go to school, get a good education, so you can get a good job. Then you can save your money and your RSPs and your and your mutual funds, and then you can retire and you can have a family and and everything's taken care of, and you get a pension, and the government's going to take care of you. We all grew up with all that crap, right? But let's look at the world we're in today, and let's look at the results. Sometimes getting that job is the more dangerous thing over entrepreneurship as an example not always but sometimes right so it's really on us to do it and the thing is we have to break through that mindset and educate ourselves so we can grow and learn more so we can become more i mean correct me if you think i'm wrong <laughs> right that's what it comes no. down to no i think uh, you're right there yeah i agree absolutely. with you i mean and look you have a university degree right uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to stab at this now. How much of that, how much help is, uh, that, uh, degree for, you know, uh, how much is it helping you right now in your business? It's a weird, it's a weird thing. I look back on it all the time and I'm like, is that, was, was that the best move? I don't know. And and you can always connect the dots looking back, but you can never really connect them looking forward. If it wasn't for me going to university, then I couldn't, I wouldn't have maybe ended up where I was today. Uh, I would have had a different journey. So I'm glad that I, um, went to university so that my dad, my, my dots did connect the way that they have. And, and at the same time, you know, I paid a price. I, I paid about four years worth of just time, you know, 30 hours a week of just learning about all the bones in the body and all the muscles and ligaments during my kinesiology degree in health sciences. And, um, $45,000 later, like I have a piece <laughs> of paper that I won't be using, uh, for what I've learned, but you know, it did teach me how to be healthy and how to, how to take care of my body and, um, I, I can really show off now at a party when I say, Hey, that's your, that's your whatever muscle, <laughs> you know? Um, but, but not, not, you know, that helpful now with what I'm doing in real estate, of course. Um, it's tough. It, it's really tough. And then the interesting thing is like the people that did not go to university or college, um, I'm, I'm a bit envious. I, I, I really am. Like, you know, if, if you didn't, sometimes it's like, Hey, you have all these extra savings. And if you knew what you were doing with those savings and you spent them on good investments, you're well ahead of where I am probably, you know, if you, uh, if you say that 40, 50, 60 grand on, on, if you're in America, hundreds of thousands, of course, on education, um, right. education's helpful. Like I'm not, not dissing the education system. At Absolutely. All. I think like it's what? helpful depending on what you want to do. And, um, you know, I, I was 18 when I made the decision to go to university and I read in the description there of kinesiology, something around, it said like athleticism. And I was an athlete in, in high school. So I just read that and was like, naturally, that's who I identify as. I'm an athlete. So I'm going to apply and go and do kinesiology. Just a, a poor way to make decisions. Um, no, absolutely. Like, yeah. now, don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking education. And I'm not saying there, yeah. there's no reason for it. Right. But all I'm saying is when somebody makes that decision, they have to have a game plan of what they want. And I find too many people today go just because of the programming, you know, because their parents told them they should be going because society's told them they should be going. You, you don't go to university. You're a loser, right? And, then, and that's the programming that we were getting out there. But that's not always true. You got to know where you're going. And if you have a game plan, you got to decide. Like, I went to college, right? I went to Humber College. The first program I rolled into was business administration. You know why I rolled into that? I didn't know what to pick. There's business administration, business management, and there was a third thing. And I did one of the coin tosses, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a course by the toe. And then whatever I landed on is the one I went for because I just had to go. I had no reason to go. Didn't know what I wanted. Didn't know what I wanted to do. Didn't know why I wanted to be there. Just we're told we got to go to whether it's college, university, something. We got to do something because leaving high school and not getting a job and, and, and not going to school, you're going to become a bum, right? That's the programming. Reality is, it's not true. Like, like we just proved, like your education was good for the journey. And I'm sure you learned a lot, but it did not help your career. I mean, by the sounds of it, this is your career. This is what you're doing. This is your investments or your, or your wealth building. But that, that diploma didn't do jack crap for that. Now, does that mean there isn't something in school that could have helped you somewhere else? There is. Doesn't mean you need it. But again, you want to be an engineer, you need school. You want to be a doctor, you need school. You want to be a lawyer, you need school. You want to be a plumber, you need an apprenticeship. 
You see where I'm going? <laughs> right? Depends what you want. And a lot of times we get pressured so much. At 18 years old, when we have to pick a school or pick work or pick something, a lot of times we don't even know what we want to do when we get out of bed, let alone what we're doing. Right? So I, I think society has put too much, not society, our upbringing. And this goes with parents because they always want us to do better than what they did. Like the intent is good. They Like, you know, people, like parents, family generally want you to do good. Generally. Right? So the intention is good. But sometimes it's just programming. And you know what? I think, and I don't know if you watch uh, Gary Vee or anything, and I kind of agree with him, where we got, a, you know, as much as, our life goes like that and it does go quick. It still is fairly long and we're living longer than we used to. So we don't have to make this decision at 18 years old anymore. We can think it out, work it out, try different things, figure it out. Right? Like it, there's opportunities. And, and that's where I was going with this. Right? It's, and again, in terms of investing, and this is where I, my real point, my point is you don't need the university degree to be able to do this. This is open to anybody who wants to learn how to be a savvy investor. Uh, let's see what else. So, okay. So then we went through the renovations and all that. We went through, um, the limiting beliefs, um, in terms well, let's get into mortgages, right? Right. Cause you always go look at, you said a and B, you know, mortgages. Now, has there ever been a time where you needed private money? Um, it's funny that you say that, uh, 48 hours ago, we just re <laughs> we, we got in this financing situation with a piece of land and a, and a property up north that we were buying. Um, yeah, financing was good until it isn't good. You know, it's usually that way. It's good until it isn't good. And then 24 hours before closing, it's like, okay, yeah, now we don't have a we don't have a mortgage that you're looking for. So we we basically had to raise $755,000 in 24 hours privately um, to close on the property yesterday. So we have keys today. Um, all's good, but yeah, it was definitely, uh, definitely a very stressful 24 hours and, and, you know, together with everyone, we kind of made it happen. So yeah, but yes, I, I have had, uh, most recently I've had, had to raise some money there privately. Yeah. Right. How it's only happened twice, only twice on properties that we buy, uh, or, or that we've bought, um, one on a duplex and then one on this piece of piece of land. Makes sense. How does that work though? Like, like what's the process of that? And what are the fees? If you don't mind me, if you don't mind breaking that down, like just for people who don't know how, I mean, cause what's the point of getting a mortgage and going through all that torture if you can get private money, there's obviously a benefit. So that's why I want you to break it down for people. So they understand the differences, advantages versus disadvantages. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Like really you look at all the lenders in three different buckets. Like one is the A lenders. That, those would be your big banks in Canada. B, B lenders would be your kind of institutional lenders. Um, they're a bit more flexible than the A's. And then your C lenders would really be broken down into your private money. So like those are individuals, people that are friends, family members, people that you might know um, that can give you kind of a, a, a loan personally. It's like one person, one person. Whereas like the other type of category there within hard money or within a C lenders would be your hard money. And hard money would be another kind of institutional lender. It's people that do this for a living. It, could be like a Mick, for example. Um, you're going to pay a premium for sure to work with like hard money, uh, eight, nine, ten, even up to like I've heard 12, 15 percent. Um, and then you're also going to have a lender's fee of like one, two, even three percent to work with these people. So, you know, that can add up. It can be very expensive. And also just the cost of doing business, depending on the project that you want to buy, uh, you might need to go the hard money route and uh, and go and get that, get that money. So it's pretty straightforward. There's lots of hard money lenders out there to, um, cause you know, people are more than willing to make nine to 15% on their, on their money passively. So, you know, naturally there, there's lots of people doing that. Lots of, lots of mix out there available when you're looking at like individual money, like from a private lender, um, you know, you just have to like network. You have to talk to people. I'm sure you already know friends, family members, people that, you know, in your inner circle that probably have 50 grand, a hundred grand, maybe even a few hundred, who knows? sitting in their savings account or their checking account, not really working much for them. And so if you're able to even give them a four or 5% return, 6% would be awesome on, on this private money. That's doing way better than it is currently sitting in their savings or checkings account. So, so, you know, it's just a matter of having a conversation and saying, Hey, you know, I'm looking to do this project. I'm going to have um, a renovation. There's going to be an expense there for the renovation. 
And I was wondering if you'd be able to help me out here with, uh, you know, putting in the money for the renovation and then I can make you 6% on your money over the course of the next year. And then once the renovation is done and you have that refinance check, you can just simply go back to that lender, your, your friend, family member, that person that, you know, and just give them their, their money back through that refinance check and their interest amount that they've made. Um, so that's kind of how it works. It's, it's a very straightforward process. It's just, again, a matter of networking, talking to people and uh, making sure that you know, like, and trust them and that they know, like, and trust you too. Absolutely. Makes sense. So um, now again, you got into the joint ventures and obviously like you help other people get into it as well, right? Like what, what other stuff do you do? Like what other services do you offer? Uh, yeah, like really straightforward. I, you know, my day job is managing the portfolio that we're growing, making sure that everything goes well there. And then more part-time it's like coaching. So I, I coach people that are looking to scale their portfolios. Um, they're looking to buy their first property as well. And, uh, and we just help them with exactly what we do in our business day to day, like how we do everything. We're just teaching them exactly what we do. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And, and by doing that, like, how do they, um, how do you get paid by that? I'm not asking for amounts. I'm just curious on the process. Yeah, no, it's just like an upfront payment. Um, you know, we work with them for a certain amount of time and it's just an upfront payment. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. I get it. I get it. What was, um, like, okay. So you said that's part-time. So obviously that doesn't bring a full-time income or does it? Um, well, it depends on what you mean by full-time John. Um, yeah, like I, you know, I, I make enough money uh, through kind of the cash flow of the portfolio. And I always like to say like, I don't jump out of bed in the morning, excited to buy properties, you know, to buy bricks and mortar and drywall and paint. Like that's not exciting to me. Um, <laughs> I, I'd argue that no one really loves real estate. They really don't. They kind of love what it can do for them. It's a vehicle, um, just like money is. Money's a vehicle. No one should really love money. It has no intrinsic value. It's just a means to an end. So, you know, that's kind of how I look at my portfolio too, is it's a means to an end. Um, and that end is different for everyone, right? My why is different than maybe why you're doing something. So the, the coaching though is different for me. Like when I get to kind of just teach people what I've been doing and, and how the business works, I, I get to kind of fill the role that my mentor is, had filled for me, it's just being able to pass on that knowledge because this isn't stuff that you can learn at university or college, like we're saying. This is very trade secret information. Like, you know, it's um, it, it's not available to the general public. Like the, the really good information is not online and blog posts or, you know, sometimes it's in podcasts, but not not all the time um, or it's in books. So so you really do have to work with someone and, and make sure that they're they're giving you coaching unique to your situation and what you want to do. That's the key here. Don't, don't, don't just pay for something that's a one size fits all really pay for something that's like, you know, of course, like individual to yourself. So yeah, I, th I think that's the key. And for me, again, it's just a passion project. I enjoy it. I enjoy handing off that knowledge and the, and the torch passing, paying it forward, I guess. Um, it, sure. Sure. It makes some money the, the only reason I kind of charge for coaching is uh, because when I went to high school, I didn't really, wasn't that tentative to class. Um, because it was free, the public education system is free. Uh, whereas when I went to university and I was paying $20 per course or per class, actually, um, then I, I was going to every class because, you know, when you're actually paying for something, then you're invested in it. And that's when you actually get results. So the only reason I kind of charge for my coaching is just to get people results. Um, need to feel kind of a bit of pain in their bank account before they actually start working towards something. Absolutely. Um, you got to pay to play. And, that, and when people pay... They want to want to get value out of it for sure. They're not going to just blow it off. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you hundred percent. And yeah, that's the other thing I was trying to get at indirectly with the coaching. I want to see, you know, see the passion part of it come out of it. So, yeah. which is awesome. Yeah. My, my portfolio doesn't check all the boxes that I have for, for fulfillment and for happiness, whereas coaching does. It kind of finishes off those, those track boxes that I don't really get from my portfolio. Absolutely. So I want to, um, you know, get one last tip for anybody that's interested. Like, what would you say? Like somebody just got out of university. They don't know where they're going in, in terms of their career, but this stuff interests them. What would you suggest they do to get started? Yeah, I think just building off of what we're already talking about here. You know, you can you can do what I did at the beginning and you can read all, all the books on real estate. You can listen to all the podcasts. You can 
listen to all the pot or you know, watch all the YouTube videos that you want. And all that information is great. And the truth of the matter is it's kind of, it is a one size fits all. It's just a blanket of everything. And this industry, as you're aware, John goes so deep in knowledge. Um, it isn't just something that you can kind of learn in a textbook overnight. I, I think you really need to just get into it and play. So you need to like actually put your foot on the, on the turf, start kicking around that soccer ball. You can't just learn about this stuff. You can't learn about the game of soccer from a textbook. Uh, you have to actually go on the field and start kicking around that ball. So, you know, the, the truth is if there's anyone that you have that does property management, that that is a real estate investor that you can even go and do a few off market walkthroughs or on market walkthroughs with them to go see how they inspect a property. Um, if there's anyone that you know, even that just is a contractor and like does renovations, like just go get your foot in the door in some area where it's actually applying. It isn't just like learning it from afar. Um, you know, for, for me at the beginning, again, I kind of just, I was learning everything. And so by default, I was learning nothing. It was just, it, it was saturation of knowledge, info overload. And I was just wasting my time, I, I do believe. Um, and, and it wasn't until like a mentor, someone that I had hired, kind of condensed the learning curve by just showing me only what I needed to know and nothing additional that I really started to make traction and make progress. So I, I'd recommend you kind of do the same too if you want to accelerate this journey and, and you know go through that learning curve even quicker. Um, I took like two years before I bought my first one. Looking back, I probably could have bought it in like four months. And I just, you know... Uh, paid someone to just teach me exactly what I needed to know and nothing extra. So makes sense. See what you start off with is what we call an analysis paralysis, <laughs> learning everything and analyzing everything and doing nothing, <laughs> not for any reason other than a lack of knowledge, just analyzing everything. But yeah, we all go through it. We all been through it. We've all done it and probably do it again. That's just the way it is. Um, in terms of, uh, yeah, see, I, I love exactly what you said there in terms of knowledge and experts. And that's why I believe in realtors because realtors have a hand in everything to a degree. Now, if you have a realtor and you ask them for a resource and they say, I don't know, that just means you need a new realtor. It should be, I got the answer, here it is, or it should be, let me find out because they have access through all their uh, resources. Somebody's gonna know something. If they just don't know, that just means they don't know enough. And that's just my personal opinion. Right, because I mean, I'm in the I've been in the business six years. Do you know how many people have come across my phone rings daily with people trying to sell me stuff? So out of all that, you mean to tell me that I don't need anybody? Obviously, I'm not resourceful. So if I'm not resourceful for myself, how can I be resourceful for anyone I'm serving? That's my belief. Now, obviously, I got a Rolodex, but I'm just giving you an example. So 100%. So anybody wants to reach out to you because they're interested in your uh, coaching program or they just want to know more about you and connect with you. Where would they go? Yeah, of course. I'd love to connect with anyone that wants to uh, wants to uh, reach out. Uh, you can go to my website. That might be the easiest way. It's at RileyLocal.com. And um, yeah, you can go there. You can fill out um, like an application and, and we can jump on a call. You can go to my Instagram or Facebook page at RileyLocalInvestor as well and, uh, and send me a, a message and we can connect and jump on a, on a phone call. Fantastic. I want to thank you very much for being on the podcast and uh, we'll check in with you again uh, in the future. All right. Yep. Thanks, John, for having me on.